This is Roger Hallam, and you're listening to Designing the Revolution. This is Talk 4, Part 2, The Inevitable Revolution. So Part 1 was the big moment, really, in this series of podcasts, where I've hopefully persuaded you of what I consider to be the bleeding obvious, as it were, which is it's too late to stop like major effects of the climate and ecological uh, crisis, and it's inevitable that it's going to be revolutionary episodes. So it takes a little while, obviously, for that to sink in. And I think one of the reasons why it takes a long time, or it's going to take a little while for some people listening to this, is because for the last 30 years, we've been sold the idea that there's really just two options out there. One option is the ever-increasing sort of mental madness of thinking that we can just go to cops and support Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth and the climate movement and go on marches and all the rest of it and by some rapidly increasing, uh, well, decreasing probability of a, of a miracle, um, the powers that be are going to come around to the idea of doing something. Well, evidently, they tried that for 30 years and it's now too late. And then the other option we're presented with is the sort of doom option, which is there's nothing we can do. It's past the point of no return. And, you know, that's it. And we're, we're just given a, a, a seat, as it were, to watch, watch the inevitable demise of humankind. So as I think I might have indicated, that those two positions are very similar in so much as they're both displacement activities, which enable us to do very little uh, and to avoid the act of resistance. Um, so the exciting thing, in inverted commas, if that's the right word, is actually what's inevitable is the revolutionary episode. We don't jump from everything fine to human extinction in a moment. All right, so where are we up to? Um, that's, that's the state of play. And what I want to do in this second section of the Inevitable Revolution talk is just to take a bit of a break from all the drama and have a little look at what this revolution thing is all about from a historical point of view or a sociological point of view. So I'm going to be fairly descriptive here and look at what revolution is and is not and how people look upon it and what have you. All right, so let's just plough into some basic ideas here. So the first thing to say is the revolutionary episodes, as I'm going to call them, can be pro-social, i.e. they can lead to progressive change to varying degrees. And historically, they can lead to forms of fascism, social breakdown, you know, totalitarian regimes and all the rest of it. So the main point here is it's open, right? Don't let anyone persuade you that revolution is always going to be great or it's always going to be terrible, like the jury's out, as you might say. And obviously this is related to various dogmas around whether they're violent or non-violent or 
they end up being violent or non-violent. Again, the jury's out, like, some of them are violent and some of them are non-violent, some of them are non-violent and then turn violent. There's a whole range. So again, nothing's set in terms of this uh, this notion of a revolutionary episode. Now, the other thing which presumably is at the back of your mind is, okay, so it's going to be a revolutionary episode, but the climate's still going to collapse and we're still going to have the extinction, so it just doesn't make any difference. You can be all doomsters or whatever the right word is. Okay, so what I want to say on this one is, and I'm not going to talk about this in great detail, but just for the record, right, there's still quite possibly uh, the option that earth repair mechanisms and geoengineering, whether you like them or not, are not are going to be able to be used, uh, which will ensure the continuation of the human race. In other words, it's not over until it's over. And I'm not saying that because I'm trying to sort of slightly cheer you up. I'm saying it because it's true. And if it wasn't true, then it wouldn't be true and I'd say it. So that's my understanding of the situation. Again, there's no guarantees, of course. You could have a revolutionary episode that doesn't get its act together or it's too late. But the point is, we don't actually know. What we do know is there's going to be massive, massive climatic and ecological disruption. And we do know that that will inevitably lead to revolutionary episodes. But we don't know for certain whether that will lead to human extinction at this point in time, 2023. So there's that opening, as you might say. Now, the next thing to just think about a little bit, and this is a bit of a controversial topic, is what will happen to a certain extent will be determined by geography. Now, I want to be clear here, this is not like totally deterministic. It's not like if you live in a really hot country, you know, you're going to be totally fucked. And if you live in Norway, everything's going to be hunky-dory. Having said that, there is what you might call a tendency for uh, geographical uh, influence on whether a country is going to completely fall into social collapse or maybe in the middle and have a certain amount of social collapse and then fall into fascism or have some revolutionary episode and move towards some sort of deliberative democratic model which is broadly the direction in which we're going to be traveling so the point is is if if in various tropical countries where the state is not that well established and society is already on the edge um it's definitely a high probability these countries will fall into classical social collapse, um, i.e. warlords, war um, civil war, uh, mass migration, what have you. In the sort of middling countries, you know, southern United States, southern Europe, um, uh, southern China, um, India, these sort of countries, you could see a more likely possibility of the outbreak of fascistic responses due to mass migration and the disruption that causes. And yes, there is the Norway scenario that in far north or far south countries, then particularly where the state's strong and there's a long democratic tradition, then we're more likely to see um, uh, democratic transitions as a result of social disruption.
So this is something to bear in mind, right? I'm, as I said, I'm not saying like it's a done deal. There's plenty of exceptions. You know, a famous one is Costa Rica, where it's got you know a highly functioning democracy, and it's stuck right in in the tropics. So you know, um, but it's something to think about in terms of surveying the territory. All right. So another another aspect is how long is this thing going to go on for this revolutionary episode so again the historical records you know a bit all over the place to be honest uh, it depends how you interpret what a revolution is of course but for the sake of argument it can be really short like there was a revolution in france in 1830 you know one day the king of france was you know fine and seven days later he was on a ship to england and being deposed so revolutions can be seven days at the other extreme, you've got Mexico in 1909, I think it is, or 1911, or thereabouts. Uh, you know, it's just debate on whether when it started and there's debate on when it finished. But for the sake of argument, it, it was still going strong uh, 10 years later in 2019. Uh, so it can be a long, a long thing. Um, all right, so how deep does a revolution have to be in terms of social change? So I've already suggested, or if I haven't, I'll make a suggestion, that our run-of-the-mill basic this definition of a revolutionary episode is an episode of social disruption that changes the re regime, or at least attempts to change the regime. So I want to make a separation here between a government, a regime, and the state. So a government is, you know, the thing that rules the country. The regime is the constitutional arrangement, you know, whether it's an aristocracy, a democracy, autocratic regime. So that's the one that's going to change. And then the state. state is not going to change in so much as it's still going to be there. Now, you know, there's, I'm not saying that the sort of ways to describe that, but I'm choosing that just as a marker. So I have a certain idea of what this is going to envisage. Of course, revolutionary episodes also involve big ruptures in social and cultural life as well. So we can stick that down on a piece of paper that that's going to be in the ballpark. And deeper still, uh, the philosophical and existential spiritual change particularly you know when you've got some major meta-historical changes you might say which arguably is what we're going to face so i'm going to put little sort of question marks around those two latter things the social and cultural stuff and the philosophical stuff and we're going to be looking at them but our sort of ballpark sort of assumption here is is what we're working towards and what's most likely to happen is this change in the regime, the way in which society makes decisions uh, at the macro level, i.e. governmental level. And, you know, I don't want to go on about all the little ideas we're going to be throwing around, but, yeah, there is going to be some major change in how people relate to each other and make decisions on various levels so so there we are that's you know that's just surveying the landscape and um 
The main thing I want to say next, and this is the main point of this talk, I suppose, is this issue of agency. And this is really critical to get your head around. So let's start, I know this sounds a bit academic, but let's start with the idea about history having agency or being determined, right? So this is a big debate. It's a rather old-fashioned debate in many ways, but it's, you know, is history influenced by the great man sort of situation? Someone comes along like Stalin or Napoleon and changes history, or is it a deterministic process, you know, to do with the economy and culture and the poor individual doesn't really have much say in it and it's these big Teutonic sort of plates that move around and every now and again there's some big change and there's nothing much we can do about it. Okay, so I'm not going to sort of start talking about which one of those is right because I think it's a bit abstract. What I am going to say is something a little bit more pragmatic, which is it depends on what's going on in society at a particular time. So just to choose two examples, if you're in, you know, 1200 AD in China, uh, you've got a landlord who controls everything. You've got a culture based around Confucius, which is, you know, obey your superiors, don't cause a fuss and what have you. You don't have any weapons and you're forced 12, 14 hours a day to do manual labor. You don't need to be a genius to work out that the level of agency you have in that particular social context is not that great. So we can say, for the sake of argument, that's pretty deterministic. Not much is going to happen. So compare that with, let's say, 2023, mobilizing people to take climate action. So that's something that many of you no doubt are familiar with. And I think it's fair to say that you don't, it's not like you can click your fingers and get thousands of people on the street, but you're not in Chinese peasant territory in 11, 1200 AD. In other words, we know, and we'll be discussing this, you know, if you get yourself organized and go and do 100 talks and you recruit two people per talk and you can do some civil disobedience and you can influence the political process uh, to a certain extent. In other words, you have some degree of agency. The upshot of all this is that it it depends on the particular context, how, how much agency, how much you're going to be able to change the course of history. And this is the main point, okay? This is the main point. <laughs> During a revolutionary episode, there's plenty of evidence and plenty of historians will support this, but there's a high level it's like the super high moments in history when there's maximum agency, what's called fluidity. And the reason for this is not hard to understand, of course, because most of the time people go to work, have pretty normal lives, you know, they're pretty crap or they're pretty good, but there's not much going on. In a revolutionary context where everything's changing, it's a good bet that people have lost their jobs, they've lost their security, so there's a whole load of economic distress going on, so people are looking for some new economic system, and psychologically there's a loss of faith in their religion or their culture, 
and people are looking for new way of looking at life, looking at themselves, looking at their society. So that's a sort of ideological rupture, as you might say. So that both of those things combined together uh, mean that there's a high probability that something new is going to happen. No guarantees, of course, but you can see where we're coming from. So some academic research on this is uh, Chenyuev and Stefan, uh, Why Civil Resistance Works. So again, some of you are probably familiar with this book. It's probably the most important book on social change over the last 10 or 15 years from an academic point of view. And there's lots of things we can say about it. But for me, the most important thing about this study of 300 uh, revolutions and you know major uprisings and what have you over the last century or so is the is their proposition that during these episodes there's a massive potential for social change if the revolutionaries or activists are number one organized and number two have some coherent strategy so surprise surprise that's what we're going to be talking about for the next 30 or so episodes because if we get our shit together then we have the chance uh, not just of changing history, but changing history in some major pro-social way. All right. So I'll just give you a little example here. So in 2012, there was a very famous episode, you probably remember it, is in Egypt. And I remember some uh, expert on the Middle East saying after the Tunisian uprising, yes, there's no possibility of Egypt doing anything. You know, they've got a dictatorship. It's all deterministic. And as we all know, he was wrong <laughs> because a week later or two weeks later, um, Egypt exploded and there's this big thing in Tahrir Square. And it was all very exciting and dramatic. And within a fortnight, the regime went from, you know, fine to collapsing. So it's a little bit of a 1830 situation. Um, so according to Genoeth and Stefan, of course, there, is, there was in that moment the potential to fundamentally change Egyptian society. And as you probably know, nothing much did change. It was one of those revolutions where there was a big flash in the pan and then the powers that be, you know, re-established control and, um, and nothing changed. And the reason, of course, is as those scholars say, there was no strategic plan, there was no uh, organised activist or social formation that had experience of dealing with uh, mass uprisings and how to translate them into political power. So that's an example of how not to do it, as you might say. So I want to juxtapose that to a certain extent with the beginnings of XR. So as some of you may know, when myself and about 10 or 15 other people set up Extinction Rebellion in 2018, it didn't come out of nowhere like the Egyptian Revolution. It was planned, in fact. Arguably, there was about a year and a half of fairly self-conscious planning that went in by various people, including myself. And the argument, of course, is because we sort of knew what we were doing, 
without sounding too big-headed about it, um, it was successful. And I certainly had that expectation uh, when the whole thing was in its planning stage that this was going to produce something big. And it shouldn't be any surprise then that after the April rebellion of 2019, 200,000 people had joined and it became an institution, as it were. In other words, it carried on. It wasn't like occupied and just exist for a few weeks and collapsed back into sort of nothingness. It had some organisational solidity. That was not created by chance. That was proactively created, as Jennifer and Stefan predict. Now, obviously, you can say, and certainly I would say, it wasn't that well planned <laughs> and consequently uh, after a year or so you know it fallen back into various uh, sort of rituals of conventional uh, environmental action but you can see the direction of travel okay so what we're going to be trying to do over these next 30 episodes is I'm going to be you know standing on the shoulders of various giants and saying okay so what we want to do over the next two or three years is collectively design not just the next XR, but how the um, how societies are going to be organised in a humane and pro-social way when these inevitable openings start to happen. So in conclusion, um, revolutionary episodes uh, are coming down the line. And just as a little aside, they do happen on a fairly regular basis. Please don't delude yourself that this is just totally a weird proposition. You know, for the sake of argument, every 25, 50 years, definitely every 7,500 years, most societies either get into massive wars or massive periods of social disruption or massive revolutionary episodes. So it happens. Human nature hasn't changed, society hasn't changed, so it's inevitable that these are going to come along anyway. And with the additional reality of the climate catastrophe, then we know they're on the way. So it's going to happen. And secondly, without being too flippant about it, there's all to play for. Um, there's no guarantees, okay? This is not, you know, the inevitable revolution results in X, Y, and Z. It's more the there's going to be an inevitable revolution and it could be X or it could be Y or it could be Z. So my last final thought on this before I finish is yes, um, yes, it does involve a lot of responsibility. That's probably the elephant in the room that you're probably thinking at the back of your mind. You know, oh, fuck, you know, this is going to be uh, a big deal and this is what's going to be happening in my lifetime and I'm not going to be able to let myself off the hook or hopefully you're not. You're not going to be able to delude yourself uh, that NGOs are going to sort it out. You're not going to be able to delude yourself. It's all going to go up in a in a puff of smoke and there's nothing you can do about it, right? There's going to be this period of various lengths when you and your generation and us as a movement are going to have this massive opportunity. In fact, it's not totally unbelievable that the power of the, the existing regime will more or less hand us on the plate 
control of societies. I know that sounds really weird, but you can check it out. It's not the first time that sort of thing's happened. So this is going to be our life's work. It has to be our life's work because billions of people's lives are in the balance, and that's just the way it is. So there you are. I don't think I'm going to make any more comments on that. You can think about that for the next day or two. And and then, yeah, I think I'm going to put in some one more sort of introductory session about all of this. And then we'll be on to the practicalities of, of what the plan is and what we're going to do. All right. Hopefully that's clear. Thanks so much. See you in a bit. Bye.